You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 65. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about Indigenous-led cultural resource management and heritage companies. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. And today we have a panel on the show. So I'm going to have all of them introduce themselves. And we're going to start with Ashley, who you already know. Hi, Jessica. Uh, Thank you again for having me and inviting me to be a part of this conversation today. My name is Ashley Spivey. I'm a member of the Pamunkey Indian Tribe. And I'm talking to you guys today from the Pamunkey Indian Reservation in Virginia. I am executive director of Kena Consulting, which is an anthropological and cultural heritage management firm that works with tribal communities, tribal organizations, and institutions that work closely with with tribal nations. And our work is really focused on supporting sovereignty, administrative capacity within tribal communities, all kind of focused on that from an anthropological and cultural cultural heritage management perspective. Awesome. Thank you, Ashley. Desiree? Hello, my name is Desiree Martinez, and I'm a member of the Gabilano Tongva community, which are the original people of the Los Angeles Basin area. And I am president of Cogstone Resource Management, which is a cultural resources firm that practices archaeology, paleontology, and history. Our headquarters are located in Orange, California, but we have offices throughout California and one in Arizona, but we do work nationwide. And since taking the helm of Cogstone the last two and a half years, I'm really refocusing the company on practicing indigenous archaeology or as much as you can within the compliance arena here in California and nationwide, making sure that indigenous voices are heard and that any reports or summaries really do reflect the history as the tribes see themselves. All right. So Jeremy is our first timer on this podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Jeremy Begay. I'm uh, the owner of Creezo Archaeological Group. We're a 100% Navajo-owned and staffed anthropological consulting group located in Farmington, New Mexico. We do all of our work on the Navajo Nation in the states of Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona, as well as three satellite reservations throughout New Mexico. Okay. Last but not least, Steve. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. My name is uh, Steve DeRoy. I'm Anishinaabe from uh, Abenflow and Lake Manitoba First Nations in Manitoba. I'm uh, a director and owner of the Firelight Group. I'm currently based in North Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. A lot of my work is focused on providing support to Indigenous communities. Firelight's an Indigenous-owned consultant group that works with communities to provide high-quality research, policy, planning, mapping, negotiation, and advisory services. Um, the other bit of work that I do is I'm a cartographer by trade, so I teach people how to use maps and tell stories of place and space. And I, I teach, I, I founded a, a, an annual event called the Indigenous Mapping Workshop, where we bring technology partners together and show people how to tell those stories. Great. This is such a good group. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Thank you again, Desiree, for suggesting the topic. Really excited to have this conversation. And uh, and also a note, you know, if you have suggestions for future episodes, definitely reach out. It may take me a long time. I think we started talking about this one like 
I don't, I don't even know, like a year and a half, two years ago, <laughs> probably. So it may take me a while, but, but we will get to it if you suggest it. So, uh, so please send any suggestions our way. And Jeremy, I'm going to pick on you as since this is your first time on the podcast. And uh, let's, let's hear about why you wanted to be a CRM archaeologist. Well, my, I like to say my story begins a long, long time ago in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had the opportunity to grow up right next to a large prehistoric village on the Navajo Nation. And a lot of my time was spent just wandering around the site and looking at all the neat stuff. And I think that really shaped my desire to be an archaeologist when I actually found out that I could do archaeology as a profession. So I started my schooling in the early 2000s. It's another Navajo-owned company where I was an intern. During my time there, I learned the ins and outs of, of the field. Started out as an intern, worked my way up to a, an archaeologist, and then eventually a supervisory archaeologist. And then it was time to, to change roles. And I, I had always envisioned myself as being, I, I guess, a field rat. <laughs> Wanted to be out in the field. The academics was, was interesting to me, but it, it was more of, of a desire to help my people using archaeology and, and working in the CRM field that led me to establish Carrizo Archaeological Group to continue that, that, that practice of, of giving back to my community and also to, to encourage training of young indigenous people who want to see, who want to come up in this profession to carry on the preservation of our culture and, and, and heritage, as we all know, which is, is really disappearing at a fast rate. I like to say that we're making headway into that. And in, in some arenas we are, but it is an uphill battle. And, and I'm, I, I wanted to establish a place where we could continue that, that fight to keep our, our cultures alive through doing CRM. Yeah. So I kind of want to open that question up to the rest of you in terms of, you know, obviously all three of you, um, just like Jeremy, like you could have done a lot of things with archaeology and, and what Jeremy was touching on there. Why, why did the rest of you choose CRM and heritage as opposed to like academia or nonprofits or any other, you know, museum work, whatever other form that you could have taken with, with your degree and your focus in anthropology. Why did you choose to go this route? Well, Steve here, I, I, one of the things I was thinking about is, is I've actually worked in uh, academia and I've worked in nonprofits and I have worked in these areas. And I think that that's what allowed me to get a good insight about what those different kind of foundations were and where they were coming from and how they were addressing these issues. And it allowed me to be a better researcher when I started my company, because, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I fell into mapping. I, it wasn't, it wasn't um, something that I thought I was going to do. And even when I was training to become a cartographer, I didn't know how I was going to apply that skill. And so it, it required me to be working in these various environments to see how maps can be used as a tool to tell that story of place and to document that cultural heritage. And so from from those nonprofit perspectives, I was able to get a good understanding from the, you know, the government perspectives, I was able to understand what their their desires were for, for map 
based data. And then when it came to actually starting a company, I was able to really say, hey, listen, let's take the best out of all of these places and all these types of professional places and, and actually apply those skills. And and at the end of the day, it allowed me to be a stronger researcher and, and really focus on the things that matter most to Indigenous communities. And so for me, it was like, how do I take the best out of all these places and then take that and apply that working directly for communities and Indigenous nations? And so... For me, I, I felt it was a benefit. And I kind of think of it as one of these things where I tried to surround myself with people that were much smarter than than me. And I, I, I could, if I was close enough to them, that I might be able to, maybe some of that magic dust would fall onto me. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, and now even with my own company, I hire people that are much, much smarter than I am. But, uh, because there's what my role is, is really uh, is about creating a space for us to be able to do this work. So... I understand what my role is. So I'm technically not an archaeologist. I'm just going to put that out there. Neither am I. Other folks on this call. (laughs) So Desiree or Ashley, either of you have thoughts on that? I fell into CRM and just like what Steve was saying is that I've done museum work. I've done academic work. I've done work um, as a tribal monitor, obviously as an archaeologist. And I had hoped to actually have a career in academia, but needed to come home and ended up not finishing my PhD. And so like most archaeologists, you kind of need a job. And so, but I didn't ever want to do CRM because it has such a bad reputation, one across the nation, but also in California. A lot of my community members had told me throughout their lifetimes in their relationships with archaeologists in California, they never could trust what was being told to them. They always felt that they were used when they would be quote unquote consulted with or weren't even consulted at all. Uh, Most of the Gabrielino Tongva community members that were involved in the heritage business or CRM business as tribal monitors in California felt that they were always reacting to things and projects that were destroying our sites. So I always knew I wanted to be an archaeologist to protect our sites. And I needed a job. And the president of Cogstone at the time, Sherry Gus, had met me through my work at UCLA at the Fowler Museum and asked me if I wanted to do some work. And I've been working at Cogstone since 2009. And once I started to get a taste of the CRM work and particularly working with with Sherry Gustin that she had really good relationships and was very honest with tribal members and in some instances providing advice to tribal members on how to protect sites helping dig up information that they could use to counter some of the interpretations that archaeologists were having regarding sites that were related uh, to their community so I really respected her and a lot of communities respected her as well and that gave me a light that CRM work could be useful to communities, but it's also, as I continue to do the work, that it's very important because a lot of the development that happens here in California goes through the environmental review process, and it really is the CRM firms that collect that information from tribes and other entities, and you could, you know, it's kind of like working in the belly of the beast of, you know, making sure that Indigenous concerns are brought to the table and acknowledge, but also try to help whatever agency, which is working with the tribes to actually address the concerns and providing um, unique insights from my own tribal background to create 
solutions, quote unquote, for um, any issues that the the tribes might bring to the table. So, you know, my eyes have changed that you you can use both archaeology as well as the CRM process to help forward Indigenous needs and issues for the betterment of the community. So this is Ashley. I, I would say my experience is kind of actually similar to, to Jeremy and Desiree's in a lot of respects. I, I grew up around, you know, the field of, of archaeology here on the reservation. I, you know, I had the opportunity to see positive example of, of archaeological work being done in consultation with the tribal community, my, my own community, you know, through the work that my grandfather was doing, uh, Warren Cook, with archaeologists from the state of Virginia and helping to tell our stories and helping us to establish a museum here on the reservation. And so I kind of grew up around this positive example of, of how anthropology and archaeology can be used as a tool to help us tell our stories from our perspectives. But unfortunately, I had, you know, I had a very rude awakening when I did enter academia regarding the fact that especially in the region that, that we're from in the Middle Atlantic region, with no federally recognized tribes up until very recently, we never had a seat at the table regarding uh, consultations if our resources were being impacted or destroyed or the ways in which our stories and histories were being told. We were rarely ever invited to the table to be a part of that discussion and to be the leaders of it. And so I saw archaeology and anthropology as a tool and as an opportunity to help, you know, my community and, and the wider Virginia Indian community and in having a seat at that table and telling our stories and histories from our perspectives. And, you know, I've, I've been in academia, but, you know, I think I had said this in my, my previous interview with you, Jessica, I just, at least in, you know, in Virginia and the region where I'm from, Academia really isn't the best place <laughs> in terms of supporting tribal communities, unfortunately, and, you know, in terms of where they are now. That is starting to slowly change, again, since federal recognition of, of seven tribal communities in Virginia uh, within the last uh, five years. That's changing, but it's changing very slowly. You know, I saw, unfortunately, academia as, as a roadblock to helping tribal communities in terms of supporting tribal sovereignty building their administrative capacity, which is, is still ongoing within my community and, and with this, within the other communities that were recently federally recognized. So, you know, I, I chose the consulting route. I started working with my partner. She was the, the petition author for our uh, petition for federal acknowledgement that went through the, the OFA, the Office of Federal Acknowledgement process, and was finally granted in 2016. So she and I, she's a fellow anthropologist who has worked with tribal communities for her whole career, decided to to come together and use our skills again as, as anthropologists. We have a slogan that's, you know, our motto is anthropology is advocacy. That's really how we understand the field, that it should be service-based for communities and not just something that's held within the quote-unquote ivory tower and kept amongst themselves. It's it's for our people and it's it's, for me, a, a tool that we can use to empower ourselves and to preserve our histories and our cultural heritage. So that's that's how I got involved in it and how I kind of decided the route of, of consulting would be the best way to do that. And the majority of the folks that we work with, our clients, are tribal nations from, from the East Coast to the West Coast and, and places in between. So we have the honor of working with many different tribal nations across the country on a, on a variety of aspects in terms of supporting tribal sovereignty through the protection of, of cultural heritage. 
Ashley, I really like that uh, that uh, slogan that you have. Anthropology is advocacy. Yes. <laughs> For me, I see research uh, as healing and yeah. uh, being Indigenous and using the way we've structured our whole research process is really meant to help guide people through a process of sharing knowledge and being comfortable about sharing that knowledge. And oftentimes people haven't come to them to ask them questions about s- some of these things that we're talking about today. And it's probably the first time. And so oftentimes many community members will just want to say whatever they need to say and get it off their chest. And then and then you can dive into the research questions that you've come prepared to ask them. And and I, I just think it's a whole, it's a healing process. It's, uh, it's one of those things that um, you need to give that space for communities to have that voice, to be able to share that knowledge and to, to be able to, as a researcher, to be able to say, this information that you're sharing with me is extremely important and I'm going to do everything I can to uh, treat it that way and I'm going to document it in a very rigorous way I'm going to be responsive to uh, people's knowledge and 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 they're the ones that are the knowledge holders my role as a facilitator is really about how do we how do we elicit that in a in a way that's that's a safe and healing process and so I I just liked what you said there about uh, anthropology as advocacy because I I think it is an advocate role that we play as as researchers and it is a healing process that we're going through to allow people to share that knowledge. Yeah okay so I really like that idea of uh, research as healing and all of you basically touched on different aspects of how uh, you wanted to use CRM and Heritage as a tool in in helping the communities that you work with or supporting, I should say, the, the communities that you work with. And so we are already at our first break. But when we come back, I really want to dive in more to some of the ways that working for a CRM company has helped you guys to just do that. So like, for example, maybe if there's a highlight that each of you could share of a project that, you know, maybe or project or it could be something else as well, but a way that um, CRM has allowed you to give back to Indigenous communities that might have been harder in one of those other formats, like a museum or a nonprofit or academia, et cetera. So when we get back, we will dive into that. Very excited to continue this conversation. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we're back. And as I mentioned before the break, I'd like to talk about some of the highlights of working in CRM. I know, like, I think it was Desiree mentioned that sometimes it gets a, a bad rap, but Honestly, I think I think I'd have a hard time working in like a a museum or academia or something like this at this point. I'm pretty unemployable <laughs> outside of CRM. So, I like it. Love to hear more about like what it has allowed you guys to do or um what opportunities it opens up for all. Of you. That could be an example project or however you want to approach that. This is Ashley. 
one of the projects I'll probably mention two. The first one is is still ongoing, so I don't have much to too much to say about it. But my team recently got the opportunity to sign a contract with the National Park Service on completing an archaeological resources management plan for a national park that they recently acquired called Werowakamako. And uh, Werowakamako is one of the most important indigenous sites in the Palatine chiefdom. It was kind of like the capital, the, the, the political and spiritual capital of the Palatine chiefdom of which uh, the Pamunkey were uh, core members of. And it's within our ancestral territory. And so it's, it's a huge honor to be able to be a part of the team, to be part of leading the team that is going to be developing the archaeological resources management plan for that place. And, you know, as I said, stated earlier, you know, anthropology is advocacy. So we are taking the approach with the full understanding from the National Park Service, right, that this is coming from an indigenous perspective, coming from, you know, the, the practice of doing indigenous anthropology and archaeology. And of course, that can't be done without working directly with the tribal nations and and the representatives. So we have just started that process. It's it's currently underway, and we'll be working on one of the first resources management plans for the National Park Service. Period. Um, there's only there's one that's been done. So we'll be a part of their guinea pig <laughs> experiment. <laughs> I'm ex- I'm excited for that challenge, and it's an honor to be able to do that work at this extremely important place. And it's actually where I, I got my archaeological career started. I started out doing archaeology at, at Werowakamako as an intern. And it, again, was one of the first projects that I witnessed in terms of it being an archaeologically focused project that had sustainable indigenous engagement. And that was kind of unheard of other than, you know, the work that I saw in my own reservation community in Virginia. And so it kind of solidified my, my experience there, you know, solidified my decision to, to pursue a degree in archaeology and then being able to come back and do this, you know, produce this document and consultation and engagement with the tribal communities is, is definitely coming full circle. So that's, you know, one thing that we have the opportunity to work on. And the other one, just, just quickly, is a lot of folks don't look at this as, as cultural heritage management or cultural resource management, but it's working directly with tribal nations to help them build their administrative capacity. And it's a lot of policy and procedure development, a lot of program development, which sounds boring to a lot of people. <laughs> but it's building that foundation so that the tribes have the, the ability and the capacity internally, right, to do the work that they need to do to protect cultural heritage and, and cultural resources. So that has been a huge honor and being able to work directly with, with tribal communities on helping them develop that capacity. Our, our other motto is we work ourselves out of a job. <laughs> we don't want people, we don't want these communities to always have to rely on consultants or outsiders to have to do this work for them. And so it's all about training. It's all about helping to build that foundation that will support the work that's necessary for cultural heritage protection, management and preservation. Well, I, I, I'd like to say that Crazy you know, Archaeological Group, we've only been in existence since 2019. So we haven't had the experience of dealing with any large federal undertakings, as most of you have. But no, we, we've uh, since we, we've opened, we've been involved with uh, several rather large projects. I, I think our, our greatest highlight to date is being awarded a project that's over 4,000 acres 
the, the whole 106 consulting process. We did everything from the survey to recording the sites and hopefully be involved in the mitigation of those sites in the future. Well, that's been our highlight to date. In, in addition to that, I think another personal highlight has been just knowing that we've been able to compete with larger companies, especially uh, that do work on the Navajo Nation. Uh, last count, there were over 40 companies working throughout the United States that have permits to work on the Navajo Nation. And knowing that our small eight-person crew <laughs> can compete with these larger companies to do work on our own lands and, and do a good job and a successful job to get our clients compliance is is a personal victory for me. But like I said before in the introduction, all it comes down to are, are, are small personal highlights, I guess. Seeing elderly people, children, our, our, our grandmothers and grandpas receive services that they, they, they have never had before. Because even on the Navajo Nation, still there's families who are living without electricity, without water, without developed roads, any kind of infrastructure. Seeing the smile on their faces when they first received these these services, you know, thanks in some, some part to our efforts, is really the end highlight, I guess, that that, that affects us the most and, and instills a greater love for, for doing this work. Yeah, absolutely. I I can 100% relate to that as someone who has done work on the Navajo Nation on projects that bring, you know, power and fiber optics and things like that. It's a very cool experience. But anyway, I won't get into that because I could tell stories, but I won't. I also <laughs> wanted to say, like you mentioned you know, you, that you're only a couple of years old. And again, that was one of the reasons why I was really excited to have you guys on this episode. I really wanted to show, you know, companies from, you know, Cogstone and the Firelight Group who are bigger and more established all the way down to, um, we were supposed to have Anastasia um, from McCoon's Consulting on here, who, you know, she's a one lady show. Um, and hopefully we can have her on, you know, an individual episode sometime later since she's in the field today. And, you know, when you're a one lady show, you gotta, you gotta do the thing that you gotta do. So, um, but I think it's it's really important that this episode shows that there is that range of companies that are indigenous led and shows that that you can start a company and you can, you know, build something like this. I think it's really easy for students to see, you know, a big cogstone and think like, oh, my God, I could never get there, you know, where Desiree is at. But it's like, you know, it's a process and, and you start with, you know, like you said with um, Carrizo, like three years, you know, small group and and you build or you don't like also staying small is great. But it's it's nice to show listeners, especially like indigenous students who might be listening, that there is this like range of possibilities within the CRM world. So, OK, going going from that, maybe let's pick one of the, you know, Firelight or Cogstone and, and talk about some highlights on that larger scale. Oh, I'd love to hear from Cogstone. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, there is a project that I'm just finishing up. You know, one of the issues with me is that there's always my day job. Well, with a lot of tribal community members here in Gabrielino Tongva territory, um, we have a lot of cultural educators and tribal leaders who we because we're non federally recognized, any type of cultural heritage work or 
education that we do within our own community as well as to the public is as a second job. And so it's always cool when I have the ability to be paid on my day job to do stuff that forwards um, the tribal interests. And Cogstone recently completed a project where they are restoring a wetlands and the wetlands is next to a number of different sites that unfortunately ancestral remains had been found both in the 50s, 60s and late 90s, 2000s. And, you know, one of the things that I've been doing in my own research in, in as an archaeologist and working within Tongva land, particularly on Catalina, is trying to get out of this idea that it's only sites or trails or lines that we're interested in, but that those features on the landscape are part of a larger living area for communities. So I've written and published that usually in Tongva territory, you have the main village site, but anywhere from three to five miles outside of the main village site is the village use area, which will include other sites besides the habitation sites, but resource, for instance, like resource collection sites, um, sacred sites, Mm -hmm. uh, ceremonial sites, access to water, as well as lithic procurement sites. And that's all part of the village. And so as part of this project that we were doing the assessment for the restoration of the wetlands, I proposed to do a landscape study and to, to really record the connection of this wetlands to two villages that are within one right next door, but also within that three mile radius being Pavungna. And Pavungna is the sacred site to the Gabileno Tongva, as well as the Ahachiman. It is the location of where we emerged from. And the location of that village site is on is recorded as three different sites. But in talking with community members, and I did, I got to do some oral histories with community members and being and taking them out to the wetlands and getting their, their history of of going to the wetlands, how them and their families use the wetlands in the past and just wetlands in general and being able to feed that information into this landscape study, which I'm calling the Pavogna Cultural Landscape, and then applying the National Register criteria and basically saying and recommending it for eligibility for the National Register. And that's something that as as a tribal community, you know, we've always wanted to do, but haven't been able to do it. So being able to get this contract proposed that this should be done and being able to get paid to do it. And of course, hanging out with community members and, and recording them was such, such a pleasure. And being able to take a lot of the public education that our community leaders have done in the public and actually write it up and being able, for instance, um, Craig Torres is who's one of our cultural educators. <clears throat> when he talks about the Gabrielino Tong for relationship to the land and he talks about Maha, which is this relationship that we as Gabrielino Tongva members have been tasked with by the Homovetum, which are the first peoples. We were taught that we have a relationship not only with the land and the animal and the plants, but also the air and the water. And as a good Tongva person, that we have to take that into account. And so he's recently been recording videos, but I was able to put a lot of that information that he's been sharing both within our community and the public into writing in order for people to understand why it's so important to acknowledge the cultural landscape as it relates to the, to the Gabilano Tongva community. So being able to, like I said, get paid to do that and spend time with the community 
it was just so exhilarating. And I've been going through and, and seeking out RFPs in order to do similar types of tribal work. And luckily we've been um, successful in that. That's awesome. So uh, Steve here, uh, you know, before, before we started Firelight, I spent a good decade of being curious <laughs> and it was through that curiosity that I really wanted to see the different ways in which we can capture and, and document and tell the story of cultural heritage. And so uh, my, my, my experience just kind of exposed me to a number of different ways that you might be able to do that. And so when we, when I started firelight with my friends, we thought, Hey, let's, let's work together. Let's, let's do, do some interesting projects and, and, and let's work on behalf of indigenous communities, not just for the big industrial companies or the, or the government. Let's, let's apply our skills and our education and our resources to support indigenous aspirations. And so so for us, it was it was one of these things that I think we had a it was good timing uh, because there were a number of uh, court cases that affirmed the rights of indigenous peoples here in Canada, but also um, it was a different way in which we were doing consulting. So so we we were we were putting the communities that we were working for those nations indigenous governments in the driver's seat and giving them the like basically saying you you're you're in control of this research process, you're in control of this project, and we'll help you secure the funding and we'll help you get, get this project off the ground, but you're going to be the one driving the process. And, and it was a very different fundamental approach than what other consultants were doing, I think, at the time where they would come in and they would lead the process and they would do everything. And 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 a lot of that capacity was was. Uh, not retained at the community. And so um, there was a few few ingredients for success for us. And I think for us, as we, as we grew, because I think there were a number of Indigenous nations that were like, hey, we want to we work with Firelight. Firelight kind of grew in, in terms of size and our, and our role as, as someone who was like the sole, one of the sole people that did all the work. I had to transition my role within my own organization to say, okay, well, how do I build systems for, for that growth to ensure that we can essentially build the next generation of researchers? And so, so the way we approached our work both internally and externally was this idea, I think Ashley mentioned earlier, this idea of like working yourself out of a job. And, and I, we were building systems in ways that we would be able to say, okay, well, these are transferable. So we can, we can apply the research both internally. We can onboard new researchers as we hire them and, and get them to follow these kind of documented processes and approaches. And at the community level, we were also able to build capacity and support the community and, and support community champions within those nations to be able to be in the driver's seat. And so it was this idea of uh, ensuring that capacity building or enhancement was was instilled in all of that. And so we had a few ingredients for success. And so for me, I feel like that's the highlight that I, that I wanted to share is this, uh, as as an Indigenous person who has an Indigenous company working for Indigenous nations doing this kind of CRM or heritage work. It's it's the idea that that you need to kind of build an army, if you think about it, or build a team. You like it's it's much bigger than you as an individual. That and and that's that's the way we've grown. And now we're working from coast to coast to coast. We've done international work. 
and we're working in the States and in Alaska. And it's fascinating to watch our our company grow in that way. Well, I got to say, it's really inspiring to hear all of you talk about your histories in doing this, and we hope to someday be at that level. (laughs) Someday we'll get there. Oh, you will. You'll definitely get there. <laughs> and, and Jeremy, just to give you some words of encouragement, we we started Kina in, in March of 2020. <laughs> wow. So and, and I, you know, I had a new baby at that time, too. So and it, it was really hard for the first the first year. But, you know, we just kept, you know, we just kept working our networks and, and building networks and, you know, working with tribal partners that we, you know, had the chance to work with in the past and, and slowly, but surely, you know, we're working our way, you know, into this, this firm that I'm really proud to say is I, I, you know, think and hope is, is definitely helping folks. So. Actually, uh, it's funny when we started Firelight, I, we had a new baby as well. And so it was like, (laughs) it was like we were growing this kid and then growing a company. And yeah, it was, it was, it's, (laughs) You know, you put your heart into this work too, and I think that's that's yes. what what this what it, this for me the highlight is is that you know this is our heart and this is our soul and yeah. this is our livelihood that goes into this, mm-hmm. and we believe firmly in the, in our approach and that I think for us we just put our blinders on and we keep focusing on on our goals moving forward and try not to get too distracted about what other people are doing, right, or or get too discouraged. You know, there is yeah. I think Jeremy Jeremy you mentioned competition. You know, yeah, there's there's a ton of competition and we have a lot like bigger hitters, you know, quote unquote, than, than us. But I think folks, at least again, locally within the region are, are starting to recognize that they shouldn't just be going to academic institutions or, you know, and not to say anything negative about the cultural resource management companies in the region. But, you know, they have some work to do when it comes to <laughs> knowing how to to work with and engage indigenous communities. So, you know, we're just we're, like, like you said, you're putting your blinders on, you're, you're staying the course, you're doing the work, you know, that matters. And I won't use the exact words that my partner, Michelle Keel uses, but we will outlast these other folks, right, who who aren't doing it from from that heart place, right, from that that place of of building capacity of supporting tribal sovereignty and, and tribal communities, because in order for it to be successful moving forward, that's what you have to do. That's what you have to commit to. And it's hard to do that if you either don't have Indigenous folks on your staff or if you're not actively engaging with Indigenous peoples. So, I heard recently this idea of what kind of company do you want to be? Like in terms of longevity and timeline, do you want to be a five-year-old company? Do you want to be a 20-year-old company, a 50-year-old company, a 100- or 200-year-old company? And so the idea that how do you bake in those values and those principles as an organization, those founding principles, the things that, that you're going to measure your success for into the future. So when I'm long gone and, and, and hopefully Firelight still exists into that future and the people that are going to be leading that uh, that company moving forward, uh, will the vision and the, the, the founding principles still exist and, and will we be able to still use those as metrics to be able to measure our success? And, you know, that, that, that'll that determine the kind of company you become. If, if you're looking at that multi-generational kind of timeline, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, seven generations forward. This is what, I, what my goals are. 
And I want to be able to create uh, some lasting change and be able to do things differently and, and position Indigenous peoples in the driver's seat and and be able to do really good and inspiring work. And so the, those visions and those values and and how you see your, your company into the future will determine all of that and how you move forward. So I want to ask that question of, of everyone then, because you all clearly have very strong visions and ethics for how you want to run your company. How are you baking those into your processes? How are you... Um, making sure that that that's what actually happens, like like Steve mentioned. One of the things that popped into my head, and in fact, I was just doing it today, is that Cogstone um, supports interns from Cal State Long Beach, which is a local university. And we've been supporting interns here at Cogstone for a long time. But in 2008, as well as in 2009, we had a number of interns that were indigenous and were part of the American Indian Studies program. And when we taught the internship, the internship was around curation of like once the artifacts come out of the ground, what happens to them? And we were helping the NAGPRA coordinator at Cal State Long Beach help with their NAGPRA compliance. So a lot of the way that we were teaching the students was thinking about those larger issues and, of course, how it relates to CRM. And so thinking about future generations, training the next future generations, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, because we had both types of students in our internship and we're going to be doing another internship again this summer as well as in the fall and being able to give them an indigenous perspective myself and um, Cindy Elvitre who is Gabrielle Tongva as well as well as the NAGPRA coordinator at Cal State Long Beach and giving them that perspective of you know artifacts aren't artifacts they are they're not resources and being able to have them think deeply about if they're going to have a future if they're going to work in CRM in the future how they should think about approaching it. And it's something I also taught when I was teaching a field school out on Catalina. And so thinking about that, and that's all stuff that, you know, we're not charging for, but is really important and was important to the previous owner of the company. And I am pulling that forward in terms of thinking about teaching our future generations, as well as making sure you know, training them also how to to talk to Indigenous community members, because that is going to be something that they're going to do if they participate in the CRM business, if they're not Indigenous themselves. And that doesn't get taught at the university level at all. And sometimes it is, you know, you can learn it while you're doing the job, but you won't learn it well. So that's something that, you know, Cogstone is always about, is about teaching the future generations as well as our own, own employees as well. All right. I, I'm realizing that we're going over this segment, so we're going to have to stop there, but we're going to come back to that question right when we come back from the break. All right. We're back from the break and wanting to dive back in and continue talking about, you know, obviously all of you have, have very clear visions for what you'd like your companies to do and talking again about about how you bake that in, like some of the specifics about how you make those things happen within your company. Well, I think growth is always an expected outcome of staying in business for a long time. But I think right now, one of our primary goals is just sustainment. <laughs> Being that that we're a relatively new company, just just working and grinding and 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 getting ourselves in a position to be able to grow. And I'd like to say uh, that 
another milestone that we hope to reach and will reach this summer is actually beginning a, an intern training program mm. here on here with our company. And that's always been uh, something near and dear to me when I when I first started doing this work. Uh, I worked with Rena Martin of the Nintendo Cultural Resources Management, a mentor and a, and a great friend, and she really instilled in me the need to train younger Navajo people and, and indigenous youth to be able to do this job um, and to realize that it is uh, an important part of, of retaining our culture and the transmission of our, our traditions into the future. So that's where we're, we're really proud of that. And and also being able to, I guess, be, be part of the change in archaeology as a whole. I like to say that I see a change happening. You know, right now we're still operating under, under the framework that's been developed in the past regarding Navajo history and, and how it's represented in, the, in archaeology. We, we, there is a change happening. And I, and I like to think that we're going to be a part of that change moving forward. So hopefully the work that we're going to be doing well into the future <laughs> is going to be is going to be helping to change that as well. That's awesome. That's a really big step. Ashley, what about you? Yeah, so I, I guess, you know, I'll focus on on one aspect. And it, and it, again, it goes back to capacity building. Every project that we take on, we make sure that there is some form of, of capacity building that is happening. And, you know, that includes internships, you know, like Desiree and Jeremy uh, have mentioned. And I'll just say personally, without the internship, you know, that I had the opportunity to, to take and to be a part of, um, I, I probably wouldn't be in this field. So it's, it's so important. Um, so I definitely, you know, recognize the efforts that they're doing and, and teaching that next generation to learn these skills and learn the importance. And again, learn them as a tool for our communities to be used as a tool for our communities. But yeah, again, capacity building, everything from the federal acknowledgement work that we take on, right? We're not just this team that writes a petition for federal acknowledgement. We actually secure funding for the community. We set up a petition office that is staffed by tribal members. We train every single one of those tribal members in the process, researching, archiving, knowing, you know, the actual uh, Office of Federal Acknowledgement process for recognition backwards and forwards so that the tribe, again, can have the capacity to not only, you know, develop this document, but to also know the process in and out so that, again, they're not going to need consultants as they move through that process and ultimately get, hopefully, federally acknowledged. And that includes, you know, every other type of work that we do, even when it's with an institution and not a tribal community, we always ensure that there is some form of capacity building for tribal members to engage and be a part of the project at a deeper, deeper level rather than just you know a consultant, but are actually a part of the process and a learning skill. And while we, we typically you know, focus in some aspects on the younger folks, we recognize all ages, right, with all different types of skill sets and knowledge bases who want to be engaged in learning that process at a deeper level so that they can serve their community. They can be a part of, of helping their tribal nation and whatever they're trying to accomplish. So that that for us is, is again, really about supporting the tribe in, in, in terms of building that capacity. And that's what we try to take with us in every single project that we work on. Yeah. And so all of you have mentioned internships and working with with young people coming into this field. What do you want young indigenous people that are interested in CRM and heritage to know? Like what would have been helpful for you 
when you were at that point in your career? Okay, I'm going to leave it at one question. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at one question. We're going to answer that and then I'll get to the next one. <laughs> but what, so what would you, what would you want them to know? I'll jump in really quick and just say something. It seems fairly simple, but it's not just to know that CRM is an option for them. You know, I went into this traditional kind of academic experience where there was no education or support in terms of learning outside of the academy, right? And I had to do that on my own. And I also, again, I went to a school that was locally based. My work was, you know, focused in within my own community. I wanted to stay close by. And, you know, there weren't indigenous faculty, but there were some indigenous students that I was able to, to work alongside as a support system, right? But just knowing that it's an option and, and having, you know, having opportunities for youth to engage in that. And like, like we've already said, the internship is a, is a great way for that to happen. So yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just one thing right off the top of my head, just letting them know that this is an option for them and that it's not just about the academy and it doesn't just have to be in this traditional sense in terms of the way academics have handled the field of archaeology and anthropology. Yeah, I like to have the youth understand that, um, that yeah, that, that there is an opportunity for them to do this and there is a, a need for young Indigenous people to, to carry on this line of work. On the Navajo Nation, there there's still taboo traditional norms that, that are still around that prohibit people from from dealing with archaeology, prehistoric remains, historic remains. And I think that tends to get in the way sometimes still of people seeing that that this is an opportunity where they can be a professional. But slowly that that's that those customs are, are disappearing like many other things. But I think a lot of people don't understand that there is work. CRM work on the Navajo Nation is a multi-million dollar industry, but a lot of people don't know that it, it's around and they can be involved. Yeah, I think I agree with everybody. And what they're saying is that, you know, we definitely need more Indigenous people. But I also like to be very upfront that it's very hard to be an Indigenous person. And I've spoken on previous podcasts with Jessica on Heritage Voices that I can't be a Native person and an archaeologist and then throw a woman on it. I get male archaeologists who condescend to me. I get people who, you know, ignore, you know, challenge me on whether I know what a mono is or not, or if, whether I can identify faunal remains versus human remains correctly. So it will be a struggle, particularly if you're indigenous, when you're working with other firms or in some instances agencies as well. And you have to be prepared that you're going to get those challenges. But then also, you know, you have your background and you have your community um, to help you fight those and know that you know what you know based on your cultural knowledge and that you have to, you know, you can stand up and, and comment back to them that they're in fact wrong. And that's, you know, we need people to be able to do that, to change the way that CRM works. And so that our cultural heritage can be acknowledged as what it is and making sure our community members are acknowledged just as much as those scholars who have written inaccurate mm -hmm. histories of our communities are. I just like to say that I think Desiree hit the, the nail on the head there in a lot of different ways. Yeah. You know, I, I was a little naive, obviously, going into this, thinking that 
oh, this is going to be so much fun. And, and don't get me wrong. There has been a lot of wonderful, amazing moments through this, you know, through the process of becoming, quote unquote, an anthropologist or an archaeologist. But it has, there were so many times where I almost gave up. And it's because of some of the, you know, similar to the experiences that Desiree mentioned that she had. And just not being, you know, supported again in, in, in those environments, typically being one of the only indigenous people in those environments. And so you're this lone voice and you, you know, luckily I was raised by a very strong <laughs> outspoken women. Um, so I have no problem, you know, speaking out, but I, I had that coming in, but it's, so it's good for youth to understand the challenge definitely of, of no matter whether you're going into CRM or uh, academia or what other, other, other position that there is going to be a challenge to you just because of who you are and where you come from and the knowledge that you do hold and that you can get past that prejudice, that you can get past those misunderstandings and misconceptions and quite frankly, derogatory behavior that will be you know happening towards you at some point in time, unfortunately. And it's knowing that there's a network out there of folks like us, right? You know, I, I, I have young people reach out from all over, uh, just wanting to talk and, and I make myself available to, you know, young indigenous people who are interested in this field, who are just, you know, who want somebody else to talk to about the experiences that they're having, because it's not an easy road. It is so rewarding in so many different ways that it's, it's worth going through the challenges and going through the roadblocks you know, to get to the point where we're able to be in the positions that we're in today and do the work that, that we're able to do today. And you will still be challenged even when you do get that degree. So just also be prepared for that. <laughs> or you have your own business. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about the industry and how it can kind of be a hostile, especially to indigenous younger people how can the industry better support not just obviously like indigenous young people, but indigenous led companies? Like, is there something that the CRM and heritage industry could do to better support companies like yours? I mean, one thing that I will say, and I probably, again, in the region that I'm from, where, like I said, unfortunately, engaging Native people at the level that, that they should be engaged is, is this a fairly new phenomenon. I would say that, okay, you know, there are folks out there at this point that you know that have the capability and the knowledge to do this type of work, whether that's alongside you, with you as a part of your firm, or, you know, there are other groups out there who have the capability to do this, who are either indigenous led or have, you know, indigenous, you know, staff. And so it's like, no, this might be kind of rude, but I'm okay with that. Like read the room and know your, your limits. I have seen so many CRM groups take on work that is again, and focused at an indigenous place and space. And they do not have the capability or the right people on staff to be doing that type of work. And so know that you shouldn't be going for that bid and let the folks who know what they're doing and have the capability and the understanding to do it, let them do it. Like take a step aside. The the pond is big enough for all the fish, and understand that there's a space in place for you, and that it's okay for folks who have again the capability, the knowledge, the experience to do indigenous based work. Let them do it. Let them handle it. I guess I'm saying like let's you know be more. And I know this is 
maybe not realistic, but being more open and understanding about sharing the industry so that we, you know, don't get the wrong people doing the, the type of work that other folks could do better. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So working on the Navajo Nation, uh, we're kind of lucky, well, we are lucky that uh, the Navajo Nation government themselves has mandated that any and all work that is put out for RF, RFPs is by Navajo. You know, they're, they're mandated to work with Navajo companies that, that are able to do the work and everyone else is given second consideration. So we're, we're, we're lucky in that we're at the forefront of, of being able to do this work. We're given first choice on projects, I guess, and first rights of, of refusal. But even in that, we still find ourselves being, being overlooked for the larger companies coming in that don't employ indigenous people, Navajo people, um, and in a lot of cases, get it wrong. <laughs> that happens that quite often. Um, and I've seen that over the years and just, just how damaging that could be to communities and and our sense of cultural identity. But I, I, I see that changing as well here on the Navajo Nation doing what we're doing. And, and I like to see that. I hope that other companies can learn from that and really take to the idea that it is important to, to have us out there in, in, in some form in order to make sure they get their compliance form signed off. <laughs> Yeah, Steve here. Um, one of the things that uh, we realized, uh, and we work in this realm of large scale industrial development and how that might have an impact on local communities, local and indigenous communities. And by working in this realm, we've had to come to understand how industrial developers and their perspectives on uh, indigenous communities are. We've had to come to understand how local communities in the vicinity of those projects and what their thoughts are on on how, you know, because not all indigenous communities are against development. I mean, there's a lot of communities that see the opportunity for being part of that development and, and, and getting some economic benefits out of it. And and so what we've found is, is that we're, we're in this space of not only helping to negotiate and support communities and in their interests, but also being able to do good research and ensure that the quality metrics that we're putting in place to ensure that the, the outputs that we're putting together are going to stand the test of uh, if it has to go to court or if they have to you know, be in that scenario where they're in a judicial type situation, that the information and the research that we've collected and all this effort that we've done to engage community members, be a part of it, that, that it actually will stand that test and be able to support them. And so we've been kind of in a posi unique position of not necessarily having to ask permission uh, to do certain things, but we just say, we believe that this is the right way of doing it. And we've also been very fortunate to work with uh, many different lawyers and law firms across the country that are supporting Indigenous communities. And so our work has been peer-reviewed by numerous lawyers and legal institutions. So that way, the, the, the work that we produce is of high quality and, and it does support those rights and interests of Indigenous groups. And so we're, we're in this unique situation where we have many opportunities to support Indigenous nations. And we're, we're now looking at how do we create a procurement strategy that enables young professionals to be a part of this. And so the idea being that 
we're going to continue doing what we're doing because we believe it's right and it's the right way of doing things and that's the right thing. We're doing the right thing. And yeah, we're open to uh, criticism and we're open to adapting. But the idea being that we're on this path that we're not asking industry to to give us permission about doing it because we believe that the Indigenous nations should be in the driver's seat. That's fundamental. But also making sure that that space is created so that people feel safe to be able to come and work in this environment and, and work with other nations across the country. And so it's just our experience that we've been able to be very fortunate uh, uh, to be able to enable uh, and, and create a safe space for young professionals to work in this field. I personally could listen to y'all for a lot longer than this, but sadly we are at the end of our time. Does anyone have like, you know, 30 seconds of something that they're just like bursting to tell our audience or, or does, is everyone feeling like you said what you, you wanted to say? Well, I'd just like to say thank you. And it was a great opportunity to participate on this panel and hear from everybody else who's been, we're doing such great things and, and where you're at professionally, we, you know, you are an inspiration to people such as myself coming up, starting young, young companies who hope to be at your place, your point someday. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you to all of you for coming. I know that obviously you're all business owners or business leaders, so you got busy schedules. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come talk to all of us here today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Jessica, and, and thank you to all of the other panelists today. It was, it was wonderful to have the opportunity to, to speak alongside all, all of you and to hear your experiences. And I hope that we get the chance to connect in the future. Yeah, in person someday. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org anthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Come.